you find your Bibles, please, uh, on your phone or in your hand. If you've got a, a Bible in your, in your pocket, please take it out. And we're going to look at our second part of our Mark series called The Portrait of Jesus. And I'm going to be sharing probably for the next year or so out of the Gospel of Mark. And I really want to encourage you to make it part of your devotions and to let God speak to you out of this amazing, amazing gospel. Um, I just want to say this as a sort of introduction. Uh, when I preach, whenever I preach, my presumption is that you want to hear what God has to say. That's my presumption. I'm not really interested in making political commentary or talking about all sorts of things that I could be talking about. Uh, if you want to know what the world has to say about itself, you can tune into the BBC and you can hear what the world has to say about itself all of the time. If you'd like to hear what the, 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 the country has to say about Brexit, I recommend you go into Sky News, not now, and you can hear what the world has to say about Brexit and the, the pros and cons of Brexit. That's not my job. My job this morning is to let you know what God has to say about Himself and about you and how that can transform your life. That's my, that's the, every time I preach, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to communicate what God has to say to you in the world and to me in the world and the amazing goodness of His gospel and His kindness towards us that transforms our lives and absolutely and completely. And so as we um, study this portrait of Jesus, and I said to you last week that all of the Gospels are really paintings of Jesus by different people that have written down different things as they remembered them. And they are different. And the th theologians put the three Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they call them the synoptic Gospels, which is a, two Greek words, which means to see together. In other words, as we look at the Gospel of Mark, Luke, and uh, Matthew, and also, John, we get a different perspective of who Jesus is. And altogether, when we read those together, we can see the fullness of who Christ is. All right? And so I started last week with this, um, this uh, series. And just to remind you of what I said last week, we tried to have a look at who Mark might have been. And we looked at the book of Acts. And we saw that Mark was actually Barnabas' nephew. And uh, as you know, Barnabas was called the son of encouragement, and he traveled extensively with Paul on his first missionary journey, and we had a look at something of Mark's life. And we also tried to understand how Mark got his source to write about, to write about Jesus, and um, this is my conviction. There are a number of theories about how Mark came about uh, his source of, to write down his gospel, but uh, I, I, I believe that Mark is actually documenting the preaching record of Peter, who, he, um, who referred to him as Mark, my son. And uh, we had a look at that last week and why I believe that. So there's also another theory which I, I do need to t t tell you about. Is, uh, some scholars have recently said in the last century that there was an unknown source of the writings of Jesus, which they called Q. And that's a fancy word. Um, which just means quell, which means source. And so because we don't know about the source or what it was, some scholars say that there was a common source and that Mark and Matthew and Luke all drew on this common source that has been lost to us and we don't know about it. So there are a number of um, holes in that theory. <laughs> One, we don't know what the source is. It's never been discovered. And uh, uh, my personal conviction, having done some research myself, is actually it's more, more likely that actually... Mark wrote down 
the preaching of Peter that he had heard. And Peter was the eyewitness that had lived with Jesus and seen all of what Jesus had did. And Mark documented that basically as best as he could. So if you are interested, please listen to the podcast from last week to get some more detail about that. And then I also encourage you that as we read this gospel, there are certain characteristics that we should look out for. And I want to encourage you as you read to look out first for, for these things. Remember, Mark starts with this amazing phrase, the very first verse, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. And he makes it quite clear who he thinks Jesus is. In the very first verse that he writes, his declaration is, this is Jesus, the Son of God, and this is the gospel, this is the good news. This is, remember I said to you, the word gospel in the Old Testament is like breaking news. It's like a sky headline. It's, uh, and they used it quite commonly when, when emperor, an emperor was, was put in place. They would say, this is the gospel, this is the good news. Augustus is now emperor, or whoever it was. And so this is the idea. This is Mark's announcement. The gospel that's going to transform your life, the news that's going to transform your life, is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one you've been waiting for. He is the fullness of God dwelling with you in bodily form. This is what Mark is saying immediately. And so I also said to you that there's this ongoing awe and amazement as Mark writes, and he points us with awe and amazement to Christ all of the time. And the, the, the gospel is full of, of, of these phrases. They were amazed. They were in awe. They had never seen anything like this. And this is the kind of picture that Mark paints. And at the same time, he paints a very human picture of Jesus. And no other gospel quite shows the emotions of Jesus as the gospel of Mark does. And they are undeniably, this gospel shows details of an eyewitness account of Jesus' life and ministry. And I also said to you that, Mark uses a simple, childlike language that just, the tempo of the language, he can't get the story out quick enough. That's how he writes. He writes very simply in this profound way to try and tell us all that he can remember of what Peter has told him. And so I said to you as I concluded last week that uh, there are two things we want to think about as we do the study together over this next year, and they're very simple questions. Who is Jesus to you? Uh, you need to answer for that for yourself. I know who Jesus is to me. I know what he's done in my life and what he's done for my family. Who is Jesus to you? I don't say that to insult you. I say that to that you ask the question for yourself. Well, who is this Jesus? What is this good news? What does it mean to me? And secondly, what are you going to do with that good news? How is it going to transform your office? How's it going to transform your family? This good news of Jesus, what is it going to do in being outworked in our lives so that it touches everybody that we know and love and transforms them as well? And so though that uh, we've spoken as a preaching team, and those are the two themes that we want to explore with you this year. Who is Jesus to us? How can we see him more clearly? How, how can he become even more beautiful than he already is? And then what do we do with this beautiful Jesus? How do we communicate him to those that are, that are around us that people can know and love him and understand and get to know just how wonderful he is? That our nation can be transformed. My friends, our nation is in crisis. And all I want to say is, why don't you just join with all, all of us and pray? That's the best thing we can do right now, is to pray and pray and pray. 
And so I want to encourage you in your devotional time just to pray that something of Christ would be seen in this nation right now. We need Jesus desperately right now in our nation to bring together what is being pushed apart and forced apart and polarized and getting more and more ugly. Jesus needs to bring us together again. Can we just at least pray for that? It's part of responding to the good news. And so in the second... um, portrait of Jesus this morning. We want to look at an interesting guy called John the Baptizer, and uh, I'd like to read uh, verse 5 to 8 with you. And so let's read together. It says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, I pray that you'd help me this morning. Jesus, I pray that you'd help me. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd bring life to these words that every heart this morning and every life would be encouraged and transformed by the power of your words. Lord, I don't have any good advice to give, but I know that your word is life and your word brings life when we will receive it and let it grow and germinate in our hearts. And so that's my prayer this morning, that this word would produce life in everyone that hears it by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, when you read about Jesus, uh, about John rather, you can see that his ministry was powerful, his ministry was effective, and people were flocking to him and submitting to his message and what he taught uh, and uh, his his, uh, emphasis on repentance and baptism. And the question is, why was John so powerful? And why did he have such an impact on the nation at that time. And I want to give you four reasons why I think that is true. He has the first one. Simply, John lived his message. John lived his message. Not only in the way that he spoke, not only in what he declared, but his whole life was a demonstration, was a protest uh, against uh, 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 against the contemporary life of his day. And I use that word purposefully because I want to show you how it was a protest, how he was demonstrating through how he lived that there was something that was desperately needed to be communicated to the nation of the Israel. And the first thing that I want to say is the place that he stayed. Do you notice that it says that he stayed in the wilderness? He stayed in the desert. Now, between the center of Judea, if you know um, a map of the Middle East, uh, between the center of Judea and the Dead Sea, there's a desert that is quite severe. It's full of limestone. It looks all warped and twisted. You can go and have a look at it for yourself. It's hot. It's severe. And as it moves out towards the Dead Sea, it goes down some cliffs uh, to the shore of the Dead Sea. And it's such a severe place that in the Old Testament, it's referred to as Jeshimon, which means the place of devastation. It's not a place you want to live, all right? It's like dry and hot and barren, and it's, it's described, as I've said, as this place of devastation. What does this show us about John? It shows us he's not a yuppie. 
It shows us John is not a city slicker. He's not a comfortable person living in the city, commuting in and out of London. He, he lives in a severe place. He lives in a desert place. He lives in a wilderness. What does that tell us about John? It tells us that he had chosen to remove himself from the, co the cosmopolitan areas of his day and to live in a desert wilderness so that he could quiet himself and he could hear the voice of God. That's what it tells us about John. He demonstrated by where he lived that he wanted to hear God for the people. Secondly, through the clothes that he wore. <laughs> Do you notice? It says, what does it say about him? It says he wore a garment woven from camel hair and a leather belt. Now there's a fashion statement for you, right? John is not some kind of androgynous Gucci model walking down like demonstrating to everybody who he is in the kind of fashionable time of the day. He's not that kind of person. John is dressed in the same way as Elijah. Elijah is described in 2 Kings 1.8 in the same way that he had a leather belt and he had a robe of camel's hair. And so it's, he's, even in the way that he looked, he's reminding us that he's not some kind of fashionable speaker. He's not some kind of um, dressed in a, like all the philosophers were in the kind of finery of the day. He's an Old Testament prophet. He's a man who lived simply and he avoided some of the luxuries of life that he could have enjoyed because he knew that something of those things kill the soul. They dampen our, our heart towards God. They, help, they, they don't help us to hear Him. And so he chooses to live without those things so that he can quieten his heart, quieten his mind, and in a quiet place, hear God for the people. This is the kind of man that John is. Do you notice? It says, thirdly, it demonstrates who John was through the food that he ate. Do you notice what it says? It says, locusts and wild honey. Now, it's interesting. Those words can be interpreted in so many different ways. Locusts could be insects. And we know from Le Leviticus 11 that under the law, they were allowed to eat certain insects, all right? But they could have also been a kind of bean or a kind of nut that were eaten uh, called carob, C-A-R-O-B, C-A-R-O-B, which was the food of the poorest of the poor. When people could not afford any food, they ate carob. There was like a bean, a nut that where they could gather with their hands, and they ate this food if they could afford nothing else. So honey, it could have been honey from wild bees. It's also possible that it might have been sap that put the poor people used to get from trees, the bark of trees. It was a sweet sap that they would suck. What is my point? It doesn't really matter what those words mean, because Whatever way you look at it, John had a simple diet, all right? John had a simple diet. He ate whatever he could, and he demonstrated through his life the message that he was living. So this man comes out of the wilderness, this kind of wild man <laughs> in camel's hair and a leather belt and probably locusts between his teeth or whatever it was and probably a very smelly beard and no kind of aftershave or deodorant. And he confronts the people and he says, repent, be baptized. And people hear him. People respond to this wild man from the middle of nowhere. And people believe the message that he brings them. So why was 
his message effective. Number two, why was his message effective? Well, first, what John was saying, in the heart of hearts, the people knew was true. That's why they believed him. It was their souls were longing for something that they'd been waiting for for hundreds of years, and they knew that what John was proclaiming, in their heart of hearts, they knew this is the, what we've been waiting for. In fact, you know, the Jews had this saying, if only Israel would keep the law of God perfectly for one day, the kingdom of God would come now. That was the saying of the day. If only we could keep the law for one day, the whole nation, the kingdom of God would come right now. And so when John called the people to repentance, he was confronting them with a decision that they knew in their heart of hearts they needed to make. And he spoke to their conscience and his message was effective because they knew that he had the right to speak. And secondly, the voice of the prophets in Israel had been silent for 300 years. And they were waiting for an authentic voice to come and proclaim to them what God was saying. And it's true, my friends, that in every walk of life, people can recognize what is authentic, what is true. You know in your knower when someone is speaking what is true. You know that someone is living the message through how they live. I read the story of Toscanini, famous violinist, and it said of the orchestra that when Toscanini came to play, they, there was a sense of power that would come upon the orchestra because he was such an authentic player. He was the best of the best, and they knew he was, and when he played with them, everything changed. The whole orchestra played differently because he demonstrated who he was by what he could do. And so that's true. You know in your own life, you can recognize a doctor who really knows what they're talking about. When you go into their, into their, um, their office and they speak to you and they diagnose you instantly, you know it's a good doctor. There's authenticity because you can recognize it for yourself. You can know a speaker who is demonstrating through what they are speaking about that they really know their subject. That they're not just kind of making it up that they put hours in, and they really know what they're talking about. And so when John came to them, they knew this is the real thing. This is not just a man splabbing off stuff. We know this man is from God. And thirdly, John's message is effective because he is completely humble. What are his own words that we read in that, in that portion we read this morning? His own words of himself is that he's not even fit to undo the sandals. Who undid the sandals of the master? Slaves undid the sandals of the master. But, but John is saying, I'm not even, I'm less than a slave. I'm not even worthy to undo the sandals of him who is coming after me. Everything that he did, everything that he proclaimed, pointed to someone who was coming after him, Messiah, Jesus. In an obvious way, John had forgotten himself and had learned to point people to Jesus. If only we could learn to do that. If only we could learn in our lives to forget ourselves. I'm speaking to myself now. Forget ourselves, our needs, our desires, our ambitions, and learn to point people to Christ through, through the way that we live. You see, 
John, in an obvious way, was a yielded man, and he was lost in his message, and this is what compelled people to listen to him, because they knew he was the real deal. Fourth, his message was effective, I've said it already, because he pointed to someone and someone beyond himself, and he told people, he said, I'm going to drench you in water as a sign, a symbol of what God wants to do. But one who's coming after me will drench you in the Holy Spirit. Water is able to cleanse your body, but the Holy Spirit is able to cleanse all of you, all of your sin, all of your memories that you wish you'd never done, all of those things that embarrass you, all of those things that in the middle of the night wake you up and cause your heart to palpitate because you're so embarrassed about them. All of those things the Holy Spirit can take and wash those away. That's, they're gone forever. That's the power of the one who's coming after me. And so he's saying, I don't want the spotlight for myself. I want you to put the spotlight in your life on someone who's much greater, much stronger than me. And they listened to him because he pointed them to the one that ultimately every one of us needs. He pointed them to Christ. That's why I think his message was effective. That's why I've given you those things, because I believe that's what the Bible says. Thirdly, do you notice that John shows us that Jesus was a spiritual Messiah? A spiritual Messiah. Why do I think it's important that I say that? Well, in the ancient world, many people were waiting for a political Messiah. And wherever I've traveled in the world today, most people are still waiting for a political Messiah, an economic Messiah, someone who can get them out of the trouble that they are in economically or financially or make their lives better in some way. That is the kind of Messiah that most people are waiting for. Just get us out of this mess, Messiah. What does John point us to? He points us to Messiah that can forgive our sins and cleanse our conscience. He's not too concerned about politics. He's concerned about the state of people's hearts and their eternal destiny. That's who John, John points us to. My friends, I want to point you to Jesus this morning. He's that kind of Messiah who will cleanse your conscience, cleanse your heart, give you a whole new hope, wash away your past, give you assurance today of your life right now and give you a hope for your future and your inheritance. That's the Messiah that I love. That's the Messiah that I want to share with you this morning, Jesus. Altogether lovely and wonderful and beyond anything we can even hope or dream of or imagine. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? That's why it's called the gospel. That's why it's called good news. Fourthly, I'd just like to look briefly at John's baptism, right? Uh, sorry, Jesus' baptism. So it says this in verse 9 to 11, if you're following in your Bible, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that portion, it does ask, force me to ask some questions. Because 
John, his whole message was, you need your sins forgiven, and you need to repent from your sins. And you need to be baptized as a demonstration of what God is washing away in your life. That meant you had to be sorry. That meant you had to have some repentance, and uh, then you were baptized. Well, if Jesus was sinly perfect, sinlessly perfect, what does that have to do with Jesus? And why did he need to get baptized? Because he didn't commit any sin. Was baptism irrelevant for Jesus? Why did he choose to get baptized? Because undeniably, Jesus chose to be baptized here. Well, here are four things that I'd like to say we can learn from Jesus' baptism. The first is this, that it was a moment of decision for Jesus, this baptism. Remember, Jesus has been living in Nazareth for 30 years, right? Working as a, as a woodworker, as a carpenter, all of his adult life. And he had faithfully done that. And he is at the long, as he's doing that, he's getting this growing sense in his life that the time is coming that he has to leave that behind and he has to go out and ultimately die for the forgiveness of sin. And he's waiting for the right moment. He knows that needs to happen. And he has the sign that the time has come. Here's the demonstration. Here's the affirmation, that moment of decision where he knows the time has come. And I want to say to you in all of our lives, for you and for me, there are moments that we have to make the right decision. And either we can accept that moment for what it is or we can reject that moment. And often, if we accept that moment and go through the challenge of making the right decision for our life, we can move into a whole new future that God has for us. And if we miss the moment, we can end up frustrated we can end up feeling discontent, and we can end up feeling that our life is just passing us by. And often I've seen that in people. At key moments, when God has said to them, do this, they have not obeyed, and they end up frustrated, and they wonder what's going on. And a drifting life can never be a happy, fulfilled life. And I want to encourage you this morning, if God is speaking to you about something you know, have the courage to say, yes, Lord, don't put it off. You don't want to have a drifting life. A drifting life is never a happy life. And here, when John appears to Jesus, he knows the moment of decision has come. He'd lived a quiet, peaceful carpenter's life in Nazareth. He chooses to leave it behind. He says, now's the time for me to move into what God has for my life. And he begins to live out his calling. And so it is for you. So it is for me. Secondly, it was a moment of identification. Not only a moment of decision, but a moment of identification. It's absolutely true that Jesus did not need to repent from sin. But what was happening with the people as they were hearing John's message is the people are saying, we need to change. There's repentance that needs to happen in our lives. And there's a sense of revival that's beginning to happen with the people. What is Jesus doing? He's identifying with that revival that's beginning to happen in the people for them, not for himself, for them. He's identifying with them. And he's recognizing what God is doing. And he's moving towards what God is doing with the people. And he demonstrated, demonstrated and identifies with it as he's baptized. He recognizes what God is doing with the people. Thirdly, it's beautiful. It's a moment of him receiving the Holy Spirit. You know, um, you know this amazing transaction happens. At the end of John's ministry begins Jesus' ministry. And this baptism expresses a commitment to his new life. And uh, his commitment is ultimately led him to die on the cross for you and for, I, for, for, for me. But as soon 
as he commits himself to this new way, as soon as he recognizes the God's, this is the moment of God's call upon his life, there's this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And do you notice the language? It says, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. A dove is a very gentle bird, isn't it? You can easily frighten a dove. You know, when you read in Matthew and Luke about the ministry of John in Matthew 3.17 and Luke 17, it speaks about the power of John's message. It speaks about the actual axe being laid to the root of the tree and that John's message was going to lay the axe at the root of the tree and the tree was going to fall down. It spoke of a terrible sifting. That's John's message. There's going to be a terrible sifting amongst the people. There's going to be consuming fire. This is the kind of language that John uses. It's power. It's God's going to break in. The ministry of Jesus starts with a dove. Descending. And a voice saying, this is my son. I want to encourage you when you're looking for authentic ministry. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is a dove who descends with love on people and kindness and patience and self-control. That's authentic ministry. That's authentic Holy Spirit ministry. And so we have this amazing sense that the ministry of Jesus starts with this act of love from the Father, a smile of the Father upon His Son, and that little thing begins a ministry that conquers the world. You know why Christians never have taken up the sword? Because Jesus has a ministry of love and reconciliation and thinking better of others. That's Holy Spirit ministry. That's what conquers the world. And it's the sealing of His Sonship. At the same time, the approval of God, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You know, no one leaves their home, no one leaves their livelihood and sets out on an unknown destiny for the life and takes it lightly. Anyone who does that is quite mad. Well, Je Jesus was the same. He'd been living in, a, in, a, in his hometown doing his work faithfully for 30 years and he needs to know from his father that he's hearing him and that he's making the correct decision of his life and so this is the approval of the father the smile of God the voice from heaven says this is my beloved son Jesus knows in that moment he's got it right I'm doing what my father has for me and the smile of God is upon his life right from the very beginning and in the prayer time this morning, I wanted to, to, to bring this to you as I conclude now. Is that, you know, do you notice for, for me, it always amazes me that, that the smile of God is upon the ministry of Jesus before he has done one thing for him. Do you notice that? He's done nothing up to this point. He's done nothing. He's been a carpenter. There's no record of him doing anything. And God smiles on him. He says, you're loved. You're my son. I love you. You are approved before you've done anything in your life. You are approved. You are loved by me. And I want you to know that this morning. If you know Jesus, 
that you are loved and approved before you do anything for Him. He loves you with an immeasurable love that can never be taken away. He will always love you with that same love, even if you go now and leave this place and serve Him for the rest of your life faithfully and you do a whole lot of stuff. He will not love you anymore after you've done all this stuff. Why do you do all this stuff? Simply because you love Him. That's the only reason. But He loves you now completely, absolutely with an undying, everlasting love. And all of us know the smile of the Father. You are my son. You are my daughter. And when you leave today, I want you to know that over your life. That you would know the smile of God. That you are His son and you are His daughter before you've done anything for Him. He loves it when you do stuff for Him. But He doesn't love you anymore if you do much stuff for Him. He loves you now completely. Amen. So what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to break bread. And I want to ask you just to reflect on those things this morning that I've tried to share. Who's this Jesus to you? What are you going to do with the good news? And thirdly, if you are not someone who knows the affirmation of God, who knows and you'll know that you are loved by the Father, that this morning you would know that that you would rest in that, that you wouldn't strive for that anymore, that you would just know that He loves you. <laughs> he loves you beautifully. John said it this morning in the ministry as well. He loves you. And there's much that He wants you to do with your life, but the part, point that you start is that you are a son or a daughter that is loved by God and knows Him. Amen? I'm going to ask the musicians to come. We're going to break bread, and after we've broken bread, we're going to um, just finish our time sealing these things in worship. But let me just pray, and then I would invite you. There's a table here on my left, a table on my right, and one at the back. Is there? Yep. And we can just break bread together as a community. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to thank you so much for great people that have gone before us, that have been obedient, that have heard your voice, that have been brave enough to just simply do what you've called us what you've called them to do. Thank you for John. Thank you for the demonstration of his life. Thank you that it was written down for us to re remember and challenge us. Thank you ultimately for the obedience of your son that in that moment left behind his life of a carpenter and chose to embrace his destiny, which ultimately led him to the cross. Thank you for Jesus' obedience. Thank you too, Lord, for your smile on his life. Thank you for that voice. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Pray for every single person here. Pray for the children upstairs, the young people upstairs, that each and every one of us would know that affirmation, that voice of our lives, that smile upon us, that you are well pleased with us, that we are your sons and your daughters, that you love us, and that all that we do is simply a response to that great love that you've already lavished on our lives. We rejoice in that this morning. And Jesus, I pray as we break bread as friends this morning, that ultimately we'll remind ourselves of our own need of your gospel, your good news, moment by moment, day by day in our lives. Thank you for your body that was broken. Thank you for your blood that was poured out. Thank you for your grace that washes us, 
that transforms us, that changes everything about our lives. Thank you, Jesus. And so when we break bread this morning, Lord, we want to remind ourselves we can't do this without you. And we need you moment by moment, day by day, to help us and guide us by your Spirit. And Lord, we want to learn to walk hearing the voice of your Spirit. And so, Lord, as we break bread this morning and we eat and drink these symbols of your body broken and your blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, we are grateful. And we say thank you. Thank you for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.